Blog Talk Radio. Jennifer Magnus has racked up awards and accolades throughout her career. We'll talk about Jennifer's music, but also her autobiography, Weeds Like Us, a story of abuse, mental illness, tragedy, and suicide, as well as survival. Jennifer Magnus joins us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tori. Thanks for uh, having me on your show. Well, as uh, we were talking earlier, I first heard your name as well as your voice around 2004. I was working for XM Satellite Radio at the time, and it was Bill Wax who introduced me to your music through Bluesville. And it just stood out, and Bill's championing of you just uh, really sunk in with me. And when I started doing a music program of my own for a station, I couldn't leave you out. So uh, I got to know you pretty well before... uh, before we finally uh, come to Weeds Like Us and to some of your other music. So um, I'm just happy to finally get to talk to you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, and I mean that. I appreciate the support of, of you know, the music and the art and, uh, you know, the um, filling in all the blank spots, uh, which is kind of what Weeds Like Us uh, in, in a certain way is. <laughs> the blank spots between the songs, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you noted at the beginning of the book, uh, writing this was a really long process. And um, being an author myself, I know the feeling there's just a long trip uh, from beginning to end, and there's so many turns in the middle of it. Um, Where did you really get the inspiration to to tell your full story? That's You know, it's interesting in a way – Sort of because I've known for a really, really, really long time, like I actually have known most of my life that I needed to write my story, Um, but I really didn't want to do it. I just did not. I mean, I was dug in as deep as I could be um, to not to the idea of not doing it because I just didn't feel like it was really anybody's, quite frankly, damn business. You know, and um, so over the course of time, very slowly, my mind changed. And when um, a real serious pivot happened um, in around, I guess, I'm trying to remember what year it was. And now I can't remember what year it was. It's one of my greatest weaknesses is remembering people's names and and chronology. But um, Mm -hmm. I'd say around um, 2000. 2006, 2007, I started uh, realizing through the help of a dear friend and business associate um, that if I were able to find a way to share my story or share parts, just even parts of my story, um, that it actually might help somebody else. And Mm -hmm. that idea 
was what engaged me. It's really what engaged me um, away from, uh, you know, being fully committed to not telling anybody anything about mm-hmm. my experience uh, as a young person. I just didn't, I just didn't, I didn't want to talk about it. I sure didn't want to talk about it publicly. Yeah. And it, it's an interesting thing because in my own writing, it was very difficult when I seriously decided that I'm going to write something that's long form mm-hmm. and is going mm-hmm. to be a production of sorts. I began to realize that I could not for the life of me write about, you know, they say write about what you know. I couldn't. It was kind of like, I'm just not comfortable going there, and I'm just not comfortable sharing some of that yet. But it got better as I moved along, and it was was interesting because a couple of friends of mine were willing to share some pretty horrific experiences, and they said, if you want to write about these, it's cool. And that showed to me how far they'd come, and I thought, all right. If I can make that work, I know I can. And it's over the years got – it gets better as you get older, I guess. I think that's I think that's really accurate. It does get better as we get older if – and I'm going to caveat that, you know, if we're, mm-hmm. you know, able to heal more, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. For those of us that come from trauma, that come through trauma and out the other side, you know – if we're able to actually begin to heal more then is for me anyway, how it got easier and uh, very undeniably uh, obvious evidence that um, if I shared my story that it could help someone else that was on the same kind of bumpy road. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's kind of therapy. And I think you've noted that as well. Yes. It really is rather good therapy, isn't it? Well, it is. It's, it isn't for the faint of heart. I'm going to say that. It is not uh, like, oh, I told my story and everything's great. You know, <laughs> but, um, at least not in my experience. Maybe other people have that. I, it wasn't mine. But, um, but ultimately, yes. Ultimately, yes, absolutely, very healing. And a lot of the, um, which you may connect to, a lot of the um, challenge relative to um, post-traumatic stress. Let's talk about PTSD for a second, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. A lot of the, you know, PTSD is, is a, is a survival mechanism as I've come to, as I've learned, I've learned it's a survival mechanism that the brain has um, to serve ways of surviving trauma and it, it fragments experiences. So it chops it up into bits and pieces and then, and then, and then um, puts it in different places in the brain where it's not connected. So mm-hmm. it's these little vignettes of memories and, and um, sometimes it's vis- visual experiences. Sometimes it's auditory stuff. Sometimes it's sense of smell or sense of taste that brings back the the little fragmented. You could think of it like pieces of broken glass, right? And yes, um, a lot of the challenge of, and so that's part of how we survive it. At, uh, how we survive trauma 
and it's true of combat veterans. It's just true. It's the way PT, part of the way that PTSD works. It's ex- actually it's it's quite brilliant, quite you know, and um, so because in order to survive the experiences, we have to not have them stored in our memory in a linear fashion. It mm-hmm. can't be linear. Um, a lot of the challenge, so you fast forward a lot of years and thousands of therapeutic hours later for me, <laughs> you know, um, hundreds, you could say, you know, hundreds of thousands of visits to a therapist's office later for me. Um, a big part of the anxiety for me, the angst uh, and the challenge of putting the book together was making it linear, making my story linear, because I had forever always had the details at absolute, um, very rapid recall of the color of the socks that I was wearing and the way the sun would shine off the little patent leather shoes that I had when I was Mm -hmm. five. And, you know, um, the way the sun would come through the window um, in the bedroom when my brother was molesting me. You know what I mean? Uh, Those kinds of details all there, but putting it together and then this happened and then that happened. And then right after that was this um, was, I was very resistant to that instinctively. Um, And so a big part of the challenge for the book for me was putting it together because in writing, as you know, you read, you, you write, and then you edit, and you shape, and you, you mold, and put it together, and pull a lot of bits and pieces out, and then you read it again, and, you know, um, doing that process for six years, which is what it was mm-hmm. for me for this book, for Weeds Like Us, six years, top to mm-hmm. bottom, once I committed to doing it, um, was really remarkable. It was incredibly brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was incredibly enlightening. And it made mm-hmm. my my um, experience of like, you know, this offhanded, I'm just crazy. I'm just, I'm nuts. I'm, but it made it a whole lot more understandable. So now it's uh, nuts, and here's why. I know I can see it. I can see it right in front of me. I can see it on the paper because, you know, my mom took her own life, and five months later the baby drowned in the pool in the backyard, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then there was this, like, sequence of events just as one little snippet. And that was... One of the things for me reading that was just like it's like here is this order of of battle that that you're going through, and it's I'm like yeah. oh my my I'm like my God, <laughs> you know, and and I meant that when I said it. I was just like this is this is and it's this is the deepest dive I think I've ever read, and mm-hmm. I mean that. Oh really? And, wow, dude. <laughs> It is. Wow. Thank I mean, you. I, I mean, it's interesting the stories people tell 
And it's it's funny because I think about that, and I think about um, a couple of members of my old band telling me some pretty scary stories, and people I used to do theater with telling me things. And it wasn't until a long, long time later that I started to piece together a few odd things that happened in my life, and I was like, wait a minute. And the same kind of thing eventually happened, but it took several years more for me to sort of put those together and be like, okay, so that is why this, maybe this is partly why I am the way I am. I I don't know, but Mm -hmm. it's, um, but yeah, I mean, and, and when you hear certain people say things, and the way they say them, and the way they tell you, and the forthrightness with which they tell you, you cannot disbelieve this. Other people might not, but I, you know, you kind of like, I want to believe this, and I kind of have to. Um, that mm-hmm. being said, let's go to the beginning of this with your upbringing. I mean, uh, as I like to say, you don't pull any punches, and it, you <laughs> begin pretty much with a shocking admission. Right. Uh, talking about my first suicide attempt. Yes. Um, right. So we're talking, I was four, I was four years old. Um, the first time I tried to kill myself. Um, and I, by the time I was four, I was acutely aware that there was them. You can put quote marks around that. And then there was me. Hmm. Um, and them was my family them was really what ultimately would end up being the rest of the world. But in this case at four, it was my family um, and me. And I didn't belong there. I just didn't Mm. belong there. And I was aware of that when I was four. I was in a lot of pain already. Um, So, you know, I think about that now and, and I'm, it's, it's very sad, you know, it's very, very sad. Um, You know, statistically it's, I'm not alone. It is an exception rather than the rule of Mm -hmm. children, you know, but there are, there are other kids at that age that, you know, apparently felt equally as bad, if not worse than I did. Mm. One question I have about it, about this, because I struggled with this myself. I struggled with Mm. that concept myself when I was about 19 or 20. And Mm -hmm. I've had friends, I've had a couple of friends of that age attempt suicide. Um, An acquaintance I went to high school with did. And Mm. sadly, just recently, a friend of mine attempted. She's okay, but it was kind of like it comes back. It it comes back no less intense for me when I think about it. Um, I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a specialist in any of it. Some people have, some experts have put postulated suicide as a cry for help. But in my own writings, I've looked at it and I've, I've examined some of the things that occurred. And it's like, these cannot always be. But do you think yours was a cry for help or was it something more? I think a cry for help is a very broad stroke right. way of framing it. And that's what I was I afraid believe, of. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I think I think it's broad stroke way of framing it. I'm not saying it's not a, not accurate, but I wasn't thinking about help. I was thinking about out, mm-hmm. as in get me out of here. I was already mm-hmm. praying for that. I don't know where I got the idea of prayer. I suppose from my parents. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, my father was a PK, uh, you know, preacher's kid. So my paternal grandfather had been a Church of Christ preacher. And mm-hmm. uh, I talk about him quite a bit in the book. But um, so prayer was not unfamiliar, certainly to my father. And my mother was very devout Catholic. And um, she most absolutely prayed, I'm sure, mm-hmm. daily. Um, but my prayer was get me out of here. I, I can't this. No, no. I, and I know that that was already happening at that age. So that's what was on my mind. Now, as an adult woman in recovery with graced with a, a massive amount of healing, there's been a great healing for me. It's immeasurable really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I look back at that and I go, okay, so my mom was already attempting suicide then. She'd already had suicide attempts by the time I was four. So do I think I was absorbing that idea somehow and acting it out? Entirely Mm -hmm. possible. Entirely possible to me. Um, You know, combination of things. I felt entirely alone in the world, even though I was in a household with, you know, um, six other people, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, two parents and and three other siblings. Um, But, you know, I wanted out. I just really flat out wanted out. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, my dad loved to watch those Westerns. And I remember, I remember when the idea occurred to me, and I thought, you know, I need to watch those Westerns. I literally thought I need to watch those movies closer. I can, mm-hmm. There was no Internet, obviously, in those days. I got to watch those movies closer. I want to watch how they're doing that, how they're making that noose to hang that guy, how they're making that noose to hang that. Now, now, you could say that that was obscene for a four-year-old, and right. I wouldn't argue that. The interesting thing here is is almost like a double life led by your family. When you talk about a time mm-hmm. in this country, late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. I think, you talk mm-hmm. in these amazingly un, like these these di- these like diversely opposite, I guess, details, like these little things about mm-hmm. your father doing things like making homemade root beer and you know, talking mm-hmm. about your family doing these perfectly normal things, and yet there's the other mm-hmm. side. It's like, was there an appearance sort of being kept up, and it was kind of like, you know, behind the curtain, there's things are not quite what they seem, right? Absolutely. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. That's my my, <laughs> my Wizard of Oz quote. Pay no attention to that man behind. The... Yes, absolutely. And and you know, my parents were consummate in that way. They were consummate you know, 50s parents. Um, My mother Mm. never, like, you couldn't 
bring a box cake mix into the house. Everything was from scratch, three meals mm-hmm. a day for the whole family, every day, every day. It was a right. big deal, you know, and the exception if we, like my dad brought home Kentucky Fried Chicken because my, my mom was a really good cook, right? you know, and a, and a great homekeeper, homemaker. Mm-hmm was the term in those days, you know, which means yep. she did everything. And she sewed most of our clothes. I mean, she did it all. But that's mm-hmm. a hell of a thing to have to keep up, as we know. Yeah. When you're dying inside. Mm-hmm. You know. And so, there's yeah, this there was other... an absolute uh, front. There was a beautiful front of Warden June Cleaver, beautiful front. <laughs> Yeah, um, and there's the thing, these, these portraits. Uh, the portrait of your father as well. Uh, he, too, there's so much he's carrying there, it seems. You know, He was a police officer, I guess, and you know, had to leave that, that sort of thing. Right. My, my mom apparently told him um, after I was born that she wasn't having it. He worked as a mm-hmm. patrolman downtown Detroit for 15 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, so before any kids were born and then over the course of through the fourth of what would be five children. But she just said, I'm not, you're not, I'm not doing it, Bill. You're not leaving me a widow with these four kids. Because she knew how dangerous it was. Yeah. And that was back in what would be referred to as the salad days of Detroit. But he was walking a beat on the street with a stick you know, what they called a billy club. Yep. You know, a gun um, and a pair of brass knuckles that he had taken off of some thug. He was very proud of those brass knuckles. Mm. <laughs> they were illegal, of course. He carried them anyway. But, you know, he was a very, very proud. And she said, I'm not having it. I will not. You will not leave me a widow with these four children. Mm-hmm. And so he had to quit. You know? And I think it broke his heart. Definite, yeah. There was a definite pride in what he did. I'm sure. You know, and yeah. And going into that also is like your siblings as well. And it seems like, and this is familiar to me, it seems the latter kind of all had their own way of coping or trying to cope within a family that was, you know, the word dysfunctional wasn't known in those days. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, my brother, my oldest brother, Jimmy, who I was the closest with, um, was extremely sensitive. But mm-hmm. there was no place for that then. There was absolutely yep. no place for that. It's not allowed. Mm-hmm. And tell me a little about these, about him and about, about the others. I mean, some of them aren't going to come off very well, of course, but tell me about these siblings. Tell me about what your visions, views of, like, Jimmy, for example, or. You know, I, I, what I want to say before it's anything further about them is that, and, and, and this applies obviously to my parents as well, it turns out that people are really complicated. Mm-hmm. We are complicated creatures. We are capable of the absolute most remarkable seats of kindness and grace and some of the most horrific shit ever. Mm-hmm. People are complicated, right? My brother Jimmy, I, whom I loved dearly, and 
at whatever point um, my dad was designating assignments <laughs> early on, your job is to take care of your little sister. That's your job mm-hmm. to my brother, Jimmy. And so, and, and Jimmy and I were close. I was also very sensitive and he was very sensitive and he was very funny um, and he could be extremely kind. Um, and um, God, he loved his music and he was, he was outspoken by the way. Um, he mm-hmm. he, he kind of was the guy who sort of spoke his mind. And, and by the way, there wasn't a whole lot of room for that either. Mm-hmm. Okay. During oh, yeah. the 50s and 60s, there just wasn't, wasn't room for that. And That's so, sure. um, you know, he and I were, were close. And um, that would continue off and on um, over the course of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved him dearly. I love him still. He could be an absolute monster, and I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Mm-hmm. I'm not joking. Um, when he was under the influence of drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. he was a monster. Um, so, you know, my brother Joe, who was the second oldest, um, whom I also loved and came to understand quite a bit later, uh, understand more later, um, it seemed as though his job um, in our early lives and as, when I was young, his seemed like his job, somebody designated him the torturer, and mm. he did a really good job of that. So um, he was very cruel to me, um, probably because I was sensitive. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that it was my fault. I mean, there's there's this sort of instinctive, you know, kind of radar that people will have, that bullies will have, that a sociopath will have for a potential victim. Mm-hmm. And I probably fit that bill intuitively for my brother. Mm-hmm. And um, many, 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 many years later, we would make peace with that, which was a huge gift. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's um, pretty amazing. I mean, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but I'm I'm happy to. I, you know, um, when I was in my early 20s and I confronted him about molesting me, Um, I was in therapy at the time um, for specifically, it was in a year long program for um, sexual abuse. Um, And um, I was near graduating that program. And one of the things that we was structured in the program was if it's possible to confront your abuser to do so with the support of the group and the therapists and da, 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 da. So you're not just standing there you know, like Man of La Mancha, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I confronted him and he, you know, went, uh, as we would say, batshit crazy. And he contacted mm-hmm. anybody, everybody in the family. And he said, she's lying. It's not true. She's making it up. She's crazy. She's always been crazy. And he absolute full on assault of denial. 
to mm-hmm. me and any towards me and anyone who you know he could get to listen. And um, I went on to you know talk with my brother Jimmy about it afterwards and talk with my sister who I also actually confronted, who was my mm-hmm. older sister because it was Jim, Joe, my sister, me, and then ultimately my little brother, um, and confronted her about her part in not telling. Um, and so, you know, my brother Jimmy's response was, that's really horrible. I'm so sorry. No wonder you hated him for so long. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought that I hated my brother Joe, but I did. I was very, very angry with him for a very, very, very long time. It would turn out many, many, many years later, I'm going to fast forward to several years later, Joe would write me a letter apologizing for what he did Mm. and completely um, owning what happened and how it affected me and how it affected my life and my self-worth and my um, choice in partners as an adult woman and Mm. all of it, just the whole, like a hundred percent recognition in a letter. And it was shocking. Mm. It turned out he had, he had gotten clean and sober at that point at that little brief window of time in his life. And he was in therapy and he wrote this letter to make amends to me. And it was stunning. I mean, who gets that? Nobody gets that story. Mm -hmm. It was shocking. And such a huge vindication. And it allowed my relationship with my brother Joe to move to a different place. Mm-hmm. It's heavy. It's really heavy. Everything, yeah. Yeah. It's like he had his moment of clarity all of a sudden. And, exactly. You know, once he once he got straightened out, that's that's amazing. Well, I just want to take kind of a half step back there because this leads yeah. into um you have this sort of, you know, as you grow older, you, you run away quite a bit, and you talk about in great detail about yeah. some of the characters that you end up with and the problems yeah. that you ran into. Um, I think any any teenager who was troubled anywhere in the ballpark of you could certainly relate with it. And it's like every now and then in your story, here comes someone that just actually opens up and to you. And the lady that took you in when you were like 16, this lady, Carrie, this woman is mm-hmm. just amazing. Please tell us about her. Uh, it's, just, it's still, um, it still brings, you know, tears to me to think about Carrie. She's, she's gone now, meaning she passed away several mm-hmm. years ago. Um, and um, it was the um, strangest situation. Um, all doors were closed. I met, she was an absolute stranger to me. She was just mm-hmm. a name on a list, name and a phone number of this person that would take in um, young girls for up to 72 hours um, 
to keep them from being on the street, underage girls, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And she was registered with a local. She was registered uh, as as a person with a name on the list, with a phone number at the local youth center, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a Sunday night, and I literally had nowhere to go. I was just out of the hospital from a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. I was first trimester pregnant. And um, every other place that I had, every other safe haven I had always gone and landed to well, had closed the door. Nope. Can't do it this time. Nope. You're too much trouble. Nope. I just can't do it again. Nope. And I ended up there. And they called her, and she said, yes, we can take her. She was like the seventh phone call or something like that. And, mm-hmm. yeah, the sun was gone down. It was 7 o'clock. I mean, it was, it was Sunday night, you know. And so my former sister-in-law, who I was with at that moment, took me to this woman's house, 843 East County Road F. Phone number six one two four two nine three two nine three. You know, and that'll never go away. And I had no idea what was going to happen. And I mean, I had seventy two hours to figure out my life because I had really, mm-hmm. really tried to kill myself that time. And I'm pretty, pretty sure I died because I had the whole experience watching myself. You know, the whole, I had the whole experience and um, a week in ICU, blah, blah. And, but, but Carrie, who was a single mom with five children and an ex-husband who was refusing to pay child support to her. So she was on AFDC trying to go to school to be a drug counselor and cleaning mm-hmm. other people's how, homes privately, translation, scrubbing other people's toilets mm-hmm. to make extra money on the side because AFDC wasn't enough. For It just wasn't enough. Um, right. Said yes to me, and she took me in. And over the course of that 72 hours, what I now know is that it was some sort of break. I see it as some sort of fissure in the universe mm-hmm. where things became very holy for me because mm-hmm. she began to talk to me um, in a way that I hadn't had I, don't, I hadn't had anybody speak to me like that before in mm-hmm. you know, all of my 16 years no one had been that uh, quite that kind or quite that interested in what the hell happened to me mm-hmm. that I would at 16 and pregnant want to end my own life. And that love from her, that from the beginning, it was unconditional love. And I've mm-hmm. never had that anywhere. And, um, you know, her kids were great. And, you know, she just told me at the end of the 72 hours when it was just about up, she said, you know, this can all stop if you want it to. And you can stay with us and we will get a license. We will figure it out. We will get a foster care license. We will take you in. You will be our family now. Hmm. You know, I didn't have people going, we want you. 
I had people going, get out, get away. And that was most of what I had known for that period of time. Mm-hmm. You don't belong. You're not right. one of us, you know. So to hear that was like some sort of bizarre language to me. And I, um, I'm very lucky. Yeah. Very, very lucky woman. You know, and that relationship would go on for many, many, many years. Many years. That is cool. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, the one other thing that I think we can all agree is a savior in another way is music. And that yeah. has always been something that I turned to throughout my life before I started trying to make it myself. And we yeah. talk about music. Um, Otis Rush comes up as sort of an epiphany for you, if that's the right word. What was it like to hear him the yeah. first time? Uh, it was it was devastating. I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I mean, I mm-hmm. was 14 years old. I had no business being in a club. Uh, I talk about that pretty thoroughly in the book, you know. Um, but I, um, I was deeply depressed, which was my norm at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. I was living, uh, you know, living in the wound, or uh, I think of it as living in the cut. I was in the cut all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, his music was so raw, and his performance was so raw. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd not, I, I had not experienced anything even close to that before. And so mm-hmm. I think it was once again some sort of holy break in the universe, and it created this break in my armor. His music, just the music. I didn't talk to the guy. It's not like I met him. I wasn't hanging out backstage. It wasn't anything like that. Right. I was just in this shitty little club, leaned against the darkest spot in the, you know, building I could find. And I, it was, I was so, because I lived in a place of disconnect. To have that, it was as if an arc of lightning came off the stage and hit me in the chest. And all of the visual that you get with that is exactly what it felt like. And it yeah. took me, it, it took me, that experience took me hostage. So when I left the club that night, because I just started sobbing and I was really glad mm-hmm. I was, you know, it was like ugly crying in the back of the, of the room and in the dark. And I was glad I was in the dark because nobody could see me. But uh, when I left the club that night at two in the morning or whatever it was, some ridiculous hour like that, it would have been, you know, cause you played till two back then. Um, I, I didn't know what the hell happened. And mm. I, I did know whatever it was, I had to find that again. Mm-hmm. I had to find that experience again. And up until that time, what other music got to you? Obviously, Otis stood out, but how about what else were you listening to or what else would, would, would sort of pick up for you? You know, um, in terms of naming artists, it would be, um, you know, Aretha Franklin. It would be, um, because her records were 
being played where I was hanging out and also mm-hmm. um, the Young Bloods, the Grateful Dead, certainly the Beatles, because, you know, you couldn't go anywhere. If you were alive, if you were breathing, you were hearing the Beatles, you know, the Stones for a lesser a lesser degree for me, the Stones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bob Dylan, certainly, because and The Doors, because my brothers had those records. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the local bands around the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, which is where I was living when all of this was happening, the Twin Cities, and um, there were some great blues bands mm-hmm. locally then. Lamont Cranston, um, Doug Maynard Band, so on and so forth. Although Doug Maynard wasn't performing just yet then. So um, some great local blues. And then there were the artists that I would ultimately end up go seeing, going to see in search of that experience again. Because I started to chase that feeling. I was chasing that feeling that I got from Otis, chasing that experience. And then so then I got introduced to to Bonnie Raitt and John Prine and, you know, that sort of cut of the cloth. Mm-hmm. It's great stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it just sort of weaves into your own your own career with the, the, the series of recordings that you've done. Now, um, this is another one I have to point out here. You talk about the time you saw Etta James perform, and I've often felt that we go see other people to get inspired, or sometimes it happens for me. I just have to go see somebody, no matter who it is, and I get re-inspired. And, um, well, Etta would just take over a stage wherever she was, but that must have been amazing. Yep. Yeah, it was it was remarkable. I was in my 20s at that point and um I hadn't seen her before and she didn't she wasn't benefiting from the resurgence in her career just yet. Mm-hmm. Which is to say that and I would find this out later that she was actually acting as her own booking agent back then. Mm-hmm. She had a a, a a hard line of a landline installed into the a large closet at her, in her house. She was working as a cashier in a grocery store in Riverside, California. And, you know, she had this line installed in this big closet. She turned it into an office and she would answer the phone with a fake name and changing her voice saying she was at a James's booking agent. I heard her tell that story in a radio interview one time and I was like, Oh my God. And that was the same period of time that I actually saw her for the first time. And, um, she, you know, and I already had some of her early records, certainly at that point, but I hadn't seen her live. So she was opening a three-way for Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. No slouch there, by the way, Martha Reeves mm-hmm. and James Brown. So the three-way package was James Brown, Martha Reeves, and Etta James. And Etta opened wow. the show. And it was, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. You That's know, pretty amazing. she didn't even have a band. Yeah. She didn't even have a band. She just used like Martha Reeves guitar player who happened to be Leo Nosentelli Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and Martha's drummer, and I don't remember who the drummer was, but it was it was unbelievable. She came out. She was wearing like black, sort of big girl clothes, so like black stretch pants, really mm-hmm. like knit stretch pants, um, little flat shoes that she immediately kicked off the second she got out of the stage. She took her shoes off. 
mm-hmm. and a black big girl sort of nondescript, you can't really tell my body shape matching knit top to the black knit stretchy pants that she had on. Mm-hmm. And no bling, no bling, no jewelry, no nothing. Came out wow. there and man, she gave Martha Reeves and James Brown a run for their money that night. <laughs> It I can imagine. Brilliant. That yeah. was so cool. Um, it was brilliant. Well, I need to step ahead a little bit here, and like this is something a little bit yeah. more about the business. Uh, there's so many instances where you point out in this about the business side of the music business, and you mm-hmm. talk about just you know trying to get money together to put a record together as you're going along, and I think a lot of folks just don't understand how much goes into it. Um, I work, I'm on an independent press and people don't realize Mm -hmm. how much goes into that that comes out of you. You don't always have the money. You don't always have the support. I mean, you went through that. Tori, I may have lost you. I'm not sure what's happening. Oh, I, I hear you. Okay. Um, I got about half of that question. Okay. Um, the 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 issue of trying to put a record together when you don't have a big label behind you, or even if you have like a yeah. name label, the you, the support right. is not always there, is it? No, it's not. I I um the support is there with a label financially to a certain degree, depending on what the deal is that you sign as an artist. I'm speaking strictly from my experience. Um, and so there's a certain degree, certain elements of support, but it's not without a trade-off. We're mm-hmm. going to give you this money and you're going to give us this amount of control, depending on what you negotiate as an artist or what your lawyer negotiates for you as an artist. You're going to give mm-hmm. us this amount of control over these particular elements. You're going to let us, you know, make the following decisions. And the stuff is usually pretty intensely defined in a contract. Um, yeah. And, and, and there's not a label. I know that a lot of labels, especially the small indie labels, I, I just should say all of them are in it because they want to be at some level supportive of the artist and supportive of the craft and they want to be engaged with the musicians and the artists. They want to be in it. They're not in it just for the ones and zeros, at least not an indie label. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a certain, I think at least it starts out with a certain level of heart involved mm-hmm. on the part of the labels. But um, at the end of the day, and there will I haven't found anybody that has their has an indie label that I've experienced that appreciates what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. I mean to say they don't like it specifically. I mean, it's not accurate. <laughs> I'm afraid mm-hmm. it is accurate, which is to say that a record deal is simply a loan. That the artist pays back pennies at a time by yeah. going out and touring to sell records, to sell downloads, to pay back the loan to finance the making of the record 
pennies at a time. I have other artist friends that are very, very prominent that call it indentured servitude. I have mm-hmm. other artist friends that are even more prominent that call it sharecropping. Wow. It's not a pretty thing to say. But I'm afraid it's not a newsflash. Now, pretty adamant, and I believe I expressed it in the book, that if you, you know, if you want to, if you want to do that, do it. But do it, go in eyes open. Don't be naive about the, the deal that you're about to make. I remember when I signed, um, when I signed with Alligator Records, mm-hmm. I came home and my husband, my then husband looked at me. Now, this was not my perspective at the time, right. but it was his perspective at the time. My then husband looked at me and he said, well, Congratulations, you just made a deal with the devil. He was not happy about it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I understand why he had that view and why he said that. It wasn't taking into account my view as a businesswoman or my decisions um, as to, you know, what I was doing. At the end of the day, I got a tremendous amount of gain from being on Alligator for six years. Yeah. I got a lot out of that, and I'm grateful for it. And I like to think they got out of, a lot out of it, too. Mm-hmm. And when I was done, it was time to go. <laughs> so there's well, that. And that's but the, the thing. Business, st- yeah, the business is yeah. hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, the thing, too, is musically you have stretched out in your recent albums. I look at Love is an Army, and I just see it's, it, there's so much more happening there. Your recent tribute to John Fogarty, there's another one. It's just like you're feeling it, – is, is it a conscious effort, or is it just something that says, I'm, gonna, I'm going this way, and you're stretching, but it's not like you're trying? I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how, to, how I would ask that. <laughs> I think the last thing you said is true. I am, I've been stretching and it's not been a um, calculated move. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. I've been following the creative um, path, this pull, I guess, uh, flow. Uh, you know, the creative um, current as as in the way a current flows um, for those albums. I never really wanted to be an artist. I will tell you this. I never wanted to be an artist that made the same record twice. Right. I never wanted to do that. There are amazing artists, people whose vinyl I own and CDs I own, and downloads of their stuff that have made this an entire career out of making the same record over and over and over and over again. Same kind of songs, same kind of style, same kind of deal, same sort of like they find this one vein of gold and they just mine that sucker. And that's <laughs> it. That's their career. Who are we talking about here? Bobby Blue Bland. And none of it's bad to me. It's right. brilliant. It's great. It's amazing. It's one thing that sonically may be different because 
the technology has changed over the course mm-hmm. of Bobby Blue Bland's career. But it's one thing, you know. B.B. King branched out a little bit later, but for the mm-hmm. most part, B.B.'s career was the one thing. It was the one thing, and it was goddamn great. Mm-hmm. Johnny Cash is another example. It was the one thing until he branched out later on to do different stuff. And, you know, Rick Rubin was producing records for him, and he did the spoken word thing. And if you've listened to any of that, and I suspect you have, it's absolutely devastating. But I -hmm. never wanted to be an artist that made the same record twice. I just didn't want to do that. So I was always pushing myself. I'm always pushing myself, pushing deeper, pushing further, you know, um, now that mm-hmm. brings with it a certain amount of anxiety yeah. because, you know, what if I can't, you know, what if I really don't pull off this John Fogarty stuff? What if it just sucks? And I ask myself <laughs> that question every album, by the way. That's not a new question for me, but, but you right. know, that's a pretty big undertaking, you know? Well, I'd have to wonder what my brothers thought of it, because I grew up hearing CCR's music coming from my brother's stereos uh-huh. with the Beatles, with the Rolling Stones, uh-huh. with Bob Dylan. And I was quite young. I was This was late 60s. And right. you certainly took his songs in a different direction than I anticipated. But speaking for myself, the same thing is you you didn't change the will and intent of John Fogarty, but you sure put your stamp on it and you, you took it in different places. And I thought that was pretty cool. I certainly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, uh, um, just kind of life philosophy these days is I try to not create more regret. (laughs) Right. And I try, I try to not create regret musically. Like, oh, God, I shouldn't have done that. What was I doing? Yeah, I'm trying to not do that, too. (laughs) You know? Well, let us ask now, in the time we have left, what what is next for Janova Magnus? What are you working on? Where are you headed? Right now, I'll tell you, Tori, I'm just trying to reinvent the wheel with what's happening in the world. And, um, you know, my touring um, is pretty much gone for the year 2020. I still have a couple dates um, in July on the books um, for the Pacific Northwest, but I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of holding my breath on that stuff because I think they're going to end up canceling. I don't think we're going to be safe to do public gatherings and I hope to be wrong, but um, I'm not anticipating everything else even later in the year has, has pretty much canceled. Um, with the exception of one show in October in Memphis that has not canceled, which is Memphis, what's well, originally known as Memphis in May. And obviously Memphis in May, in the month of May, got canceled. Um, yep. Excuse me. So I, um, I'm trying to figure it out. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to, I have all the equipment to do it, start a podcast. Um and I'm doing a little bit of virtual concert stuff, but not a lot, because um, there's an awful lot of it out there, and I don't want to be a part of the glut, you know, but um, do have that in the works, actually. I'll probably be putting um, a live streaming concert out there in the next two weeks, mm-hmm. um, and trying to stay in touch with my booking agent while I still have one. <laughs> the whole thing has changed. And I do think that it's a, 
you know, I was talking to Taj Mahal about two months ago on the phone, and we are friends, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and, you know, I was feeling pretty nervous when I was talking to him just about what the hell is happening with the business and music and, and touring. And he mm-hmm. said his perspective was this is all a big reset as far as he's concerned. It's a huge reset, not just for the business of music, but for the world. And so I decided I was going to try to adopt that view legitimately, find a way to see it that way legitimately. And I think it's true. I think it's accurate. I think that it's, it is a huge reset, not just for business and music, but for the world. But the, the business and music is, is being given an opportunity to reset itself completely here. And I think that, that there's some, some pain involved with that. And I think that there's some really good stuff involved with that. And once again, the impetus comes back to the artist too about it. How am I going to stay in touch with my fan base? What am I going to do to um, keep the connection going with my fan base and the music? Because at the end of the day, that's really where it's at for me. All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for... That's what I'm trying to do, reinvent the wheel. All right. Well, well, Janova, again, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been fantastic, and it's been a joy to talk with you. Thank and you, I think you've definitely helped some people just with this, and um, I wish you the best of luck in reinventing. Thanks, man. I sure, hope, uh, I sure hope somebody got something out of it out there. I appreciate the time and the support, Tori. All right. Thank you so much. That wraps up this edition of the Brown Posey Press Show. Our guest has been blues singer Jennifer Magnus. Her autobiography, Weeds Like Us, is available courtesy of Fathead Records at com and online retailers. Her latest album is Changing the Weather. Jennifer Magnus sings John Fogarty on Blue Alon Records. I'm Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey Press release, Searching for Roy Buchanan, and its follow-up, Call It Love, which will come later this year. This is the Book Speak Network. Thank you.